I was waiting to see how many adults would leave. Like, I, I'll be in the pageant. It's good to be back. Thanks for the opportunity. I know I was here recently. I love the drive up uh, because there are actually trees here. <laughs> Unlike where I live in New York, my daughter actually is always confused when she walks on the grass. It's so novel to her. So I love the, um, the different shades of uh, brown and taupes and the reds. Um, I actually find the green oppressive during the summer. And so I love seeing all the others come out because underneath the green, those colors have always been there. Right? But it's not until the green is done, the chlorophyll fades away, that all of a sudden the colors that are already embedded in the leaf uh, make themselves known. And so part of, I think, the, the delight of fall is uh, what's always been true makes itself known. As the chlorophyll, which served its purpose during the summer, has already faded. As Peter mentioned, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, as you know, um, and we work on college and university campuses to help bring Jesus and the good news of the gospel, both in its personal as well as its systemic uh, aspects to college students. And over the course of this last about four months, in about 15 to 17 different colleges and universities, InterVarsity's presence has been challenged uh, for two primary reasons. At about a quarter of the schools, it's um, universities saying it's impermissible and immoral for you to require student leaders to sign your basis of faith that requiring people to be Christians before they lead your Christian fellowship is discriminatory against all the other non-Christians who would like to lead a Christian fellowship. <laughs> Befuddling, I know. The other primary way that uh, we're finding ourselves somewhat beset and besieged on campus is um, usually around the issue of Christian behavior, particularly around the issue of human sexuality. Uh, InterVarsity, being a movement committed to scripture has said we welcome everyone to our meetings we welcome everyone to participate in prayer meetings in small groups in large groups but uh, we're convinced that leaders should be restricted only to those folk who at least are attempting to live out the commands of scripture where that tends to get us in trouble right now in the current climate campus is um, students who are actively well you know it, where it's becoming politically difficult is when students decide that they're gay or lesbian, they come out and then say they'd like to pursue a relationship, including a sexual relationship. Now, it doesn't seem to bother the campus that far more frequently, we're actually asking heterosexual members of our fellowship to step down from leadership uh, because uh, they're engaging in conduct which we think is sub-biblical, but obviously around the issue of human sexuality, it's um, GLBT issues which are primary. So just this Wednesday, while I was in meetings at Madison, I get a frantic phone call from one of my staff at Buffalo, and he says, uh, we have a student leader. He's actually been the MC of our large group meetings. He's the best known person in the fellowship. He's also our treasurer. He's been in leadership. He's been struggling with his uh, sexuality for a year or so, and he's been very upfront about it. We've been praying and engaging. He decided in the last two weeks that um, he's no longer willing to consider the issue of his orientation before God. He really believes God affirms his orientation, and affirms that he should be able to have sex just like everyone else. What should we do? So there are all of these issues legally that are now uh, at play for us because it's going to affect our position on campus depending on how we respond to this. 
what was interesting to him, the staff workers I was talking with him, was he said the student has really read through scripture and he's decided that even though the passages are pretty clear about um, Christian sexual behavior, I don't know why I keep having to talk about Christian sexual behavior here, but um, <laughs> he's decided that in light of the fact that Jesus has come because um, the greatest commandment is love, as long as you're in a loving relationship, it's fine. And in some ways, right, while that's a little beyond, I, I suspect, most of our experiences, um, the struggle with what do you do with all those commands in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, particularly in light of what Jesus does throughout the New Testament, and Paul talks about in the New Testament, how, do you, how does it all hold together? How is it a single coherent Bible that we have, as opposed to an Old Testament, which was, it's just old, and so we don't have to pay attention to it anymore? And then the New, which we like, because, you know, at least here in the United States, if it's new, we like it. So you can unleash a new edition of something or a new release of a software, and we'll go buy it. You watch the kind of lemming-like response of people, oh, is there a new iPhone? You know, four million of them, I think, in the first day or so uh, being purchased. How does this hold, hold together? Jesus seems to confront this problem in the passage that we looked at, at right at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You know the context, I trust. Matthew, in some ways, is reliving, retelling the story of Israel in the person of Jesus. So Jesus is sent from infancy into Egypt, and then emerges out of Egypt, is sent into the wilderness for a period of 40 days, not years. He's immersed in baptism, uh, in the river, and then comes out and he goes up to a mountain and he begins to deliver this charter which defines who his people are going to be, right? It, it's, it's designed if you were a person of faith in Israel, you'd be going, Israel, water, 40 days of temptation, up on a mountain. You'd start to be thinking Sinai language there, wouldn't you? That as God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, say, this is what it means to belong to me. This is what my people looks like. Jesus is saying, this is what it means to belong to me this is what my people look like. And so you have the Beatitudes where he redefines um, what it means to be a follower of his around issues of character. What do you long for? What do you care about? What causes you to mourn? Where does your comfort come? Not by the riches you have, but by your identification in both the spiritual and physical poverty around you. And then he says, the reason you exist is to be salt and light in the world. Never hide that. And then I suspect, as Matthew's putting together the sermon, um, Jesus tackles a problem which has befuddled people, which is, you know, Jesus, you seem very cavalier about the law. You know, you, you go around healing on the Sabbath. You, um, you feed people when they're hungry, regardless of what day it is. Like, how do we understand you? And Jesus responds by saying, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the, or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. And it's this funny um, contrast, isn't it? Because he says, I didn't come to eliminate the law. The, the right parallel would have been to say, I came to obey the law. I came to follow the law. I'm not eliminating the law. But he doesn't use that contrast. He instead says, I've come to fulfill the law. <clears throat> what does that mean? I think part of what Jesus is getting at uh, when he talks about he fulfilled the law is that the entirety of the Old Testament, in its laws um, and in the works of its prophets, in the writings which make up the Old Testament as we have it now, he says, I've come to fulfill it. Everything that the Old Testament points towards, points towards me. I'm the culmination. I am the thing to which they long for, the thing for which they hope, the thing which the Old Testament um, anticipated. It's now here. <clears throat> and 
so I think it, you could think about it in three different ways. Um, he fully fleshes out what was anticipated about God's coming in the prophetic sections of the Old Testament, which includes, I think, the prophets and I think the sacrificial system, which anticipated what was necessary for an intimate relationship with God. And he fully defines um, everything that the, hope, that the Israelites hope for. Right? So this extravagant language that you get in Isaiah, one day peace is going to enter the world in the presence of this servant who's not only just going to redeem us, but he's going to announce his law to the islands and the nations and bring them all to come to worship God here at Zion. For all of the longing and hope and agony that uh, Jeremiah, as he weeps, weeps over the city and yet still believes uh, there's a future and a hope for you people and I will redeem you and restore you to your proper land one day. For Hosea, who grieves over Israel and experiences what it's like to have an unfaithful spouse so that he hears the heart pain of God and yet the promises that God will one day bring all things back together. Right? All of those promises, Jesus says, I'm the answer to those promises. You didn't see it fully. There were multiple ways that you could have anticipated it in the past, but now everything they hope for, and even more, is finally here. One way people have described the way the Old Testament prophecies point to Jesus is a little bit like saying, um, if you had told a person in the 1800s, I'm going to buy you the fastest transportation available, and you'd bought them a horse, that would have been appropriate. But now, if somebody gave you a car and said, this is it, the fulfillment of the promise that was made 100 years ago, it's fully consistent. There's a lot of horsepower in that car, but it's infinitely faster, infinitely better, and comes with air conditioning and no need to muck up the stables once you're done. <laughs> um, Jesus doesn't just flesh out the Old Testament prophecies. He fully reveals all that's being taught about God in the Old Testament, right? Because there's not just prophetic language. There's just plain out didactic language. This is who your God is. He is holy. He is just. He is merciful and compassionate, abounding in love, right, to his people, and yet not forgetting the people's sin. Everything that was true about God, Jesus makes clear and demonstrates even more so because we believe Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So you see Jesus' holiness and his concern about sin as he preaches. You see his great mercy played out not just from afar, but intimately with people as he touches a leper who hadn't been touched maybe in years or a decade. He speaks to women as people who um, are fully equal and fully deserving of dignity and respect. When given a choice between going with a senior religious leader to cure his 12-year-old daughter or to speak to a woman who had been excluded from the religious world for 12 years because of her hemorrhaging, he addresses them both touches both, calls both daughter, and raises both up. Right? Everything that we know to be true about God is still true about him in the New Testament, and yet Jesus takes it a step further because now he's here in the flesh. He's made his home among us. And then the good news, of course, as we've all been thinking about the Holy Spirit, is that he continues to dwell within us. He doesn't just fulfill all the prophecies. He doesn't just um, fully reveal all of who God is, right, in terms of the doctrinal precepts of the Old Testament. He fully obeys the ethical requirements given by God in the Old Testament, which we often think of as the law. And he fully lives out the law's purposes by revealing God's holiness as he, you see his life and his expectation of holiness as he interacts with those who sin. So that in, in kind of three major streams, both in prophecy, in doctrine, and in um, ethics or law, Jesus fulfills it all by being the answer, the example, the exemplar 
of everything that the Old Testament was pushing toward and anticipating. And Jesus says, I'm fulfilling this. I'm not going to eliminate it. Well, if this is true, if everything in the Old Testament has been designed to be, has, sorry, if everything the Old Testament was designed to do has been accomplished by Jesus Christ, then two things are true for us. One, they still remain true, right? The Old Testament is still God's good word for us. Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. Everything that points toward him continues to point towards him. Everything said to us about God, about what God desires, about who, what God intends to accomplish, still remains authoritative for us. And they remain relevant because they still point us toward the reality that we're experiencing Jesus Christ, which is every long for hope, for desire of the Old Testament is now available to us as New Testament Christians. So here's how I think it plays out then. Um, the law still needs to be honored, but because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law, the law is interpreted by Jesus Christ and in light of Jesus Christ's accomplishments. What does that mean? The best example I could come up with is, I don't, are any of you piano players or have any of you taken piano lessons? Right, a couple of you. Um, do you remember, I, I don't know if you all used it, but do you remember Hannon exercises, book one, endless little trills and like um, you just, it, for those of you who haven't, it's, it, in your early piano years, it's agony. <laughs> because you play these like little um, trilly things in order to strengthen your fingers, in order to develop coordination, in order to develop flexibility. For a long time, especially if you practice as little as I did, for a very long time, um, those exercises were um, the rigid framework through which you approach piano playing. It's that in scales, over and over again, up and down, up and down. Um, once you achieve mastery, or at least competency, the hand and exercises no longer drive you. They actually become then tools which you're able to use to continue to develop dexterity and skill. So if you talk, or I, I read interviews sometimes of uh, performers, what they say is, I practice for even, the better they get, the longer they practice. And they continue to use those really basic finger exercises because the need for the dexterity is always there, but its purpose in their life has changed. It's not to train them into competency, it's now to lead them into greater proficiency. Those of you who cook, maybe a better example, I, for those of us who love to cook particularly, um, the first time I make anything, I follow the recipe really religiously, right? I, like, I measure everything, I follow the directions, um, because it's the framework to get to the place where I want, which is the final stew or whatever. As soon as I have achieved appropriate stewness, <laughs> the recipe functions in a different way for me. Significant sections of it are still authoritative. You should brown your meat. It just will taste better at the end, right? You must cook it a certain length of time because the meat will be tough without it. But all of a sudden, it's no longer an authoritative thing which I follow rigorously because it serves that purpose. It becomes the framework around which I experiment and am able to develop other things based on the context in which I find myself. And I wonder, and it's a loose analogy, but I wonder in the New Testament what you see laid out is this kind of um, living relationship with the law that's a little bit different than just sheer rote mechanical, I'm going to follow it letter by letter, but it probes for more deeply and firmly into the purposes of the law and the prophecies. So a couple of examples in the New Testament. Um, the book of Hebrews 
I think, is a reflection of New Testament, a New Testament writer and the New Testament church reflecting on, you know, there are all these sacrificial requirements in the Old Testament, but when you consider what Jesus Christ did as the ultimate and final sacrifice, as you, you meditate on the fact that because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and continued presence with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, it seems somehow unnecessary to be offering animal sacrifices to win favor before Christ, before God. Jesus Christ has done it all. He's, the, he's by far better. And so part of the book of Hebrews, in some sense, is New Testament church's reflection on saying, God did command us to do sacrifices, but Jesus Christ seems to have fulfilled the need for them. They still serve a purpose in that they remind us of God's holiness and our sin, but Jesus Christ has done it ultimately. And you begin to watch Hebrews talk about the supremacy of Christ in all circumstances, and it's not long before the church um, stops participating in the sacrificial system in the temple. Now, it's partially probably because they were kicked out, and partially because the temple was destroyed you know, in 70 or so AD, so it wasn't many years afterward. But you, I think you see in Hebrews some of the reflection on it's still God's word, but because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, we see it slightly differently at this point. I think you see the same thing when Paul engages around the issue of circumcision. Right, in Galatians, he's so angry at Peter for requiring Gentiles to be circumcised that he confronts him to his face and says, you cannot, you don't even, under, what are you doing? You're betraying the very Jesus you claim to serve Peter by refusing to um, eat with people who have not yet been circumcised. What was the Cornelius thing about for you if it was not for this? Right, I mean, he just confronts him to his face. You preeminent apostle, get it together. Later in Paul's life, he brings, um, I believe it's Titus, back to Jerusalem toward the end of the book of Acts and immediately has Titus circumcised. Is Paul just that forgetful? Is he just replicating the mistake that Peter made? Or is he saying, look, if you think of circumcision as a requirement, which is the, um, which is the basis for our acceptance with God, then you completely reject what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. But if I need to circumcise someone so that we're more effective missionaries and more effective partners in the work of evangelism here in Jerusalem, then for the sake of those who still don't understand, we're going to do it. Do you see how he makes the distinction and how he begins to reflect on that? Now, I suspect you're thinking what I'm thinking, I hope, is both, whoa, what a huge slippery slope. Right, because you can justify almost anything as long as it's done in love. Um, and isn't that incredibly complicated? I mean, how are we supposed to know the deeper issues of what the Old Testament law, what were prophecies were designed to accomplish and apply it appropriately now in the present? I mean, are, are you sure that's what's going on? And I think the only way the church can manage that is actually what we've been looking at right the last six or seven weeks here at um, Community Bible Church. That's where the Holy Spirit has to come in. Right? It's the Holy Spirit that teaches us and illuminates Scripture so that we can understand it. It's the Holy Spirit that continues to be God's voice and direction for us. It's the Holy Spirit that guides us into good thinking. I think that's why it's interesting that in Acts 15, when the church was wrestling with, do Gentiles need to become Jews before they become Christians? When the Council of Jerusalem met, right, the first great gathering of church leaders, um, in Acts 15, verse 28, as they reflected on what needed to be done, and as they began to send out their instructions to the new churches filled with Gentiles, the apostles say, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to ask you to do this. That it's not just our best thoughts 
on how to apply the scriptures now. It's not just, this seems inconvenient. I think I'm going to abandon it in the name of the law of love. It's as we looked faithfully throughout the whole goal of the scriptures and we looked at what Jesus Christ accomplished and as the Holy Spirit engaged us, we're inviting you to this, these set of actions, brothers and sisters. Let's take a step back from the how to do it stage into the we're invited to do it place. Consider the immense privilege that God extends to us. He's inviting us to be in consultation with him about how to apply the truth of his word into our present context today. It would have been right and fair and good if God had just said, just do what I tell you. You never need to change it. Think about it, reflect on it, or even make a decision about it. Just do it. But we've all heard language like that before, right? Those of us who are parents have used that language before and maybe even used it this morning. Don't ask why, just obey. And what God seems to be doing is instead says, is saying to his people, the church, as you move into maturity, as you listen to my spirit, as you understand the world about you, I want to engage in something much richer and more deeper than just pure unthoughtful, unreflective obedience. I want to be in a conversation with you. I want you to understand not just what I told you to do, but why I told you to do it. So that when you enter into situations which are 2,000, 3,000 years beyond the original situation I spoke into, you can so fully do the things that I invited you to do appropriately because you know my voice, you know my intentions, and you know where we're going. Everything I said is still true, but in today's context, this is how you apply it. Uh, Theologian and Pastor N.T. Wright put it this way. He imagines the Christian work around ethics and living out the law as this. Imagine you had um, one of the great plays of Shakespeare, I think is what he often uses. You had the first five or six acts, I can't remember how many right now, of Hamlet, but the last act was missing. The challenge for us is to so thoroughly absorb the first four acts, to so understand both the plot and the character and the motivations and the direction of the narrative that when the, when the director turns to us and said, now act out the fifth act. Play the roles. Do the thing. Bring to completion the script. We would do it in such a way that were William Shakespeare to watch he'd say, that's exactly where it had to go. Because you're being consistent and truthful with everything that was true about the characters, everything that was true about the narrative, every line, every rhyme scheme that I set up, you're continuing to live out. But I'm inviting you to create it. Because I've given you enough to understand where we need to go. The law leads us to Jesus, which leads us into an experience of grace. And that's really, I think, where Jesus is going with the first three verses of 17 through 19. Don't think I've come to abolish these things. I've come to fulfill it. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. But I've come. And I am coming. And anyone who sets aside the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches those commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the goal is not just to loosen it to make it easier. 
or make it more broadly acceptable, the goal is to live so consistently with it. Because if you live consistently with what God has taught and who he's called us to be, then, and you encourage others to do so, then you're going to be great and delighted by God in heaven. Um, but if you try to have people weasel out of what God has taught, Jesus seems to be saying, then it's not just that you're causing them to do bad things, you're causing them to miss my voice. They won't understand my presence. They're not going to be listening for the Holy Spirit's guidance. They're separating themselves from everything that would be life-giving. That's why they're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And then beyond inviting us to dance around the content of the Old Testament, right, and to participate with what God's doing and play it out into the future, God seems to invite us into a process of transformation as we engage with this. Um, I'm only going to go to verse 20, but the rest of the section that we had read today plays out what this looks like more, and I believe Dick's picking that up next week. But Jesus says in verse 20, as he says, look, dance with me, understand why I made these rules, and then play it out more deeply in the future. He says, now, if you think this is going to make it easier for you, if you think that this is just license to do what you like, then he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, this would have been just mind-boggling then. Now, I suspect you all have heard enough sermons to know, but Pharisees, I think, get a terrible rap in the church. In large part, because Jesus always confronted them. And so we think of them as really uptight, unpleasant people who were just kind of legalists and dull and irritating. But um, they were people like us, I think, at their hearts. They were people who said, well, we have the law of God and we want to obey him. And they we're really concerned we're going to get it wrong because we love God so much. We want to honor him in everything we do. We don't want to deviate from what he's teaching. We're concerned we're going to mess it up. So um, they tried to be helpful. They, had, they, they gave sermons with lots of application, right? They would have been fantastic PowerPoint presenters because they said, God says don't work on the Sabbath. Now, I know you're all asking, what does that mean? Let me offer you a few guidelines. Right? And they'd offer a few guidelines, and as people reflect on those guidelines, you needed a little bit more explanation of the guidelines. Their goal was, we love, Jesus, we love God so much, we want to honor him in every way possible. We would hate for him to be saddened by the fact that we violated the law. So, like, is it work if I move my light from one part of the house to another? Well, yeah, don't be moving things. Rest. But what happens if I just light a candle, then I have to move it to the place I want it to go? Well, that's not really work. That's just situating, right? I mean, because they're worried people are like, is every piece of lifting? And then am I allowed to put clothes because I'm lifting clothes? They said, well, if it's, you know, if it's draped on you, that's fine. But if you're belting it to yourself, that's a problem, right? I mean, it, it seems ridiculous, but imagine loving God so much that the merest violation would grieve you. Imagine loving God so much that you thought, whatever it takes, I'm going to do to obey you. Imagine loving God so much that you're scrupulous at every level to make sure that in everything you do, from the moment you wake to the moment you sleep, God has been honored. That's what the Pharisees are trying to accomplish. And Jesus says, you got to go beyond them. Not just a little bit, but like an order of magnitude beyond them is what he seems to be suggesting. If you're in the crowd, you're thinking, I don't love God that much. I don't love God enough to be a Pharisee, number one. I have to love God more than the Pharisees anymore. You're joking, right? Um, because the Pharisees were admired by many of the common people for their zealousness. 
for their love of God and their observation of the law. Um, so how can you exceed the righteousness of people who are so scrupulous and so faithful? I wonder if part of what Jesus is saying and implying is, if it's just about behavior, you can't. The Pharisees defined righteousness, living rightly, living well, living properly before God in terms of rule-keeping, conforming their behavior to the law, which is what the law is going to encourage you to do, right? Any of us who've been teachers or parents know as soon as you set up a rule, what you're really getting is outward conformity and behavior and submission to the expectation. Jesus, in the sections which follow the, these first uh, four verses in the section that we read, seems to suggest, and I think Dick is going to t touch on this next week, defines righteousness in terms of really transformation. How do you do more than just behavioral conformity, but actually um, soul and heart conformity to the law? Those of us who work with children, I, right, I'm reflecting a lot on this, having a three-year-old, one-year-old, um, rule abiding would be very satisfying on most days. Um, but in the end, I don't, need my, I don't want my children to remember the rules. I want them to so understand what I intend for them as a parent that they delight and pursue it on their own. Right? I don't, I mean, there, she's only three, she has no real homework yet, but I, when she gets older, I don't want, like, dad makes me do a half hour of homework. I want her to be the kind, my children to be the kind of people who, like, I want to be smart so that I can contribute all of who I am to advance God's kingdom and to cause the word to flourish. So books are an opportunity and a privilege and a delight for me, right? I want them to be the kind of people who, like, I'm being nice to people and greeting people at the door because we make her greet the doorman who works at our building every day. And I know she thinks it's, I have to do it because mama and dada make me do it. I want her to be the kind of person who thinks I can either be a blessing today or a burden to, to people today. And I choose to be a blessing. Right? I, I want a heart change, not just conformity. Conformity would be nice, but we, but we could have no relationship at all if she just did what I told her to do and didn't understand who I wanted her to become. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at, as we'll see more next week. So... How do you do that, though? Where, where could you possibly go? Again, I think that's why we've been teaching on the Holy Spirit here at CBC for the last six or so weeks. How can our heart be conformed to the law? It's the Holy Spirit's work in us, right? It's what Jeremiah says in chapter 31, verses, verse 33, when God says, I will put my law inside you. And I will cause you to write up in your heart so that you aren't consulting just an external text, but your heart itself will tell you, this is who God is. This is who he desires you to be, and this is the world he desires to remake and renew and recreate. So do this, because it's what you long for, because it's what God longs for. It's Ezekiel, right, 35, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. I wonder if the fruits of the spirit, love and joy and peace, um, Patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness, and self-control might be an interpretive lens through which you look at the Old Testament law. Where does the law help me do this? We often think of it as a series of do's and don'ts, but could it be that the law was designed to help us live into the fruits of the Spirit, and we just can't see it because we'd be more satisfied with do's and don'ts? It's why the Pharisees, I think, are outside the kingdom in this last verse, um, because they're without the Holy Spirit's transformative work, they're just settling for behavioral conformity. And God wants so much more. Um, 
there's a story that Ben Patterson tells that I think reflects some of this difference. Um, he talks, he tells a story of um, this certain perfectionist husband. Um, and no matter what his wife did for him, it never seemed to be enough. And at the beginning of each day, he'd make out a list of things that she was supposed to get done. And at the end of the day, he would scrutinize it and make sure it was all that he had intended it to be. Um, the best compliment she ever received was a disinterested grunt if she finished everything. Um, you can imagine this woman grew to really hate her husband. And when he died unexpectedly, she was pretty embarrassed to admit that she was relieved that he was finally gone. Um, within a year of her husband's death, she meets this other man, um, a warm and loving man uh, who was really everything her former husband was not. And they fell deeply in love, got married, and uh, she just experienced joy. And he says one day she was cleaning out um, her attic, and she found a box and was moving through papers, and she found a little crumpled up piece of paper, and as she opened it up, it was one of those old chore lists that her first husband used to give her. And she couldn't stop herself from reading it. Um, and she looked at it, and she all of a sudden realized she was still doing all those things. But um, her new husband had never suggested that she should do it, but she delighted in doing it. It gave her life to do it. And there's something about when your heart is engaged in a relationship of love that I think transforms outward behavioral conformity into acts of love that bring life and bring joy. It, it, it's, I think a lot of this can be summed up by why we do communion, right? Communion is actually the New Testament church responding to Jesus' command, have this meal together. That as the church reflects on it, they realize this does everything and represents everything that the old sacrificial system used to do. It reminds us that sacrifice is necessary. It's our internalization of God's good news of grace to us. And it's an act of thanksgiving on our part as we thank God for what he's already accomplished. Right? So because we take communion, the animal sacrifices and the grain sacrifices now seem totally superfluous, even the, but we're still living out their purpose. We give thanks to you, God, for this food through which you feed us and remind us that you were the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world. And it's at communion, I think, that we also remind ourselves we could settle for just doing what you want us to do, Lord, but we need to internalize the good news. Jesus Christ died for us. It's not about behavioral conformity. You desire our hearts, so we confess, and we ask for renewal. And we pray that the new covenant will actually bring us life. In the case of my friends at Buffalo, uh, actually the student um, decided to step down on his own as an act of integrity. He just said, I, don't, I no longer believe everything that you do, um, and so I shouldn't be leading this group. But our invitation to him was, please, worship with us. Stay in Bible study with us. The staff is saying, I would love to still disciple and you help you grow in your faith. Because we don't know what the primary thing God works, wants to work on the student about. It may have nothing to do with orientation, everything to do with falling more deeply in love with Jesus. But it's also really why I love the fall. Um, I, I often think of the law as the chlorophyll in the leaf, right? It served an incredible purpose to bring life to the tree, to bring health to it, to bring it enough nutrients to store up for the long winter. And when the chlorophyll served its purpose, the underlying brilliance of the leaf started to shine through and brings beauty. The chlorophyll served its need and helped the tree to grow. And now the underlying beauty of the leaf is beginning to show again. It's not a perfect analogy, but as you engage in the Old Testament, 
and press into the New Testament truth, everything about the Old Testament still applies. But it applies in light of what it was designed to accomplish, which is who is Jesus Christ? What's the transformation he intends for us? And how do we press into the good news? It's a hard road. There are no easy answers. That's why we give thanks for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and in our church. And we think through the consensus of the church for 2,000 years, which comes to the table week by week, month by month, to remind ourselves of what Jesus has already accomplished and what he promises in the new covenant, which brings us hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. Um, allow me to pray for us. Father, spare us um, from two competing errors, I pray. One which um, is so scrupulous about the law that we forget the goodness of the lawgiver, or one who becomes so lax about the law that we forget you did give law, and that, um, if anything, Jesus Christ um, raises the bar on our need for holiness. Help us to listen to the voice of Jesus, to see Jesus clearly so that we see how um, everything that was hoped for in the Old Testament is fulfilled, and then we follow him wherever he goes. Thank you for his death and his resurrection, his continuing dwelling with us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you reign in heaven with the Father. And we long for the day when your kingdom will come and your will will be done in its fullness here on earth as it currently exists in heaven. Amen. Amen.